it's a high honor to talk to you in the Raider Nation as we welcome in the GM of the Silver and Black as we get going. Dave Ziegler, kind enough to join us. How are you, Dave? You're all set. I'm outstanding. You're you? great to see Thanks you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming in. Oh, I love it. And I got to ask you, because we got a lot to cover here, what did it look like to you when you didn't have a pick in the first two rounds, but you looked out at that sea of humanity in Vegas? That must have been outstanding for you to see. Yeah, it was awesome. I mean, it just, you know, just to see all the, um, <clears throat> all the people flock out here to Vegas, which we know is an outstanding city as is, and um, everybody dressed up in there. You know, whether it was their Raiders gear or those were the people I was looking for. Yeah, they were uh, there. You know, but, you know, all the different fans and things like that. And just to see, like, how this event's grown, you know, and then seeing uh, the city of Las Vegas being able to support it. One, it looked like a great time. I know you had a great time. Yeah, had a good time. I know Modelo was down there doing their— You know, the do, buckets do, of Modelo do, were flowing, were doing, no doubt. We're doing their thing, and, you know, the M had their event. And um, just a cool—you know, just a cool thing to see. I think the vibe here for me is, like— um, you know, I know it's a new it's a new market, but it just seems like the right fit. Like yeah. the, if the if the Raiders were going somewhere, the Raiders in Vegas, it just seems like a beautiful marriage. And it was a lot of fun to see all those people down there having a good time. And we were working, um, and me and Josh were working and continuing to get prepared for the next day. Um, and so we were double dipping, but it was yeah definitely fun to see. Yeah, it looked great because you see the Bellagio fountains, and then you see the link, and these are areas that you and your wife and your kids are going to frequent over the next couple of years, and hopefully for a very long time. And it just popped. You know, Radio yeah. City Music Hall is something, and they moved it around, and you know Kansas City is going to have it coming up here in Detroit. But did you get a sense that Roger Goodell and the league looked at Vegas and said we want to come back here again? I would hope so. Yeah. I mean, how could you not? You know what I mean? Like the the link was the thing that was surprising to me. I didn't know how that would all look but I mean that was impressive um, just the setup and the the amount of people that were there and um, I can't imagine um, why they wouldn't want to hold it here every year um, but um, I, I, I have to imagine they're definitely going to come back after what the and to put on for the, you know, what they put on for the um, the weekend there. Dave Ziegler joins us in studio. So ahead of the draft, did you think there would be that many trades? I mean, nine trades. I can't imagine what that was like as you're sitting back ready to pounce there coming up in the third round and you see all this movement from A.J. Brown, Detroit, moving up to get a receiver. What was that like as you were putting your plan together and seeing all that movement? Yeah, um, I've learned never to be surprised in the NFL, but um, – you know, it, it was a, a, fear, a flurry of activity, yeah. and it was, you know, you're always kind of, you know, taken back a little bit, like when all these different trades are going on, because it happens so fast. You know, usually when you're doing a trade, oftentimes, I mean, that can be a tedious process. Sure. You know, a trade can take months um, to get done or weeks to get done. And so to see it all go down that way, I know um, uh, Dwayne Joseph, our pro director, one of his jobs in the draft room was kind of keeping track of the trades. And updating our boards in terms of who we're picking there and it's like every time I look DJ was up moving or moving around yeah. and scrambling around he had the most stressful job over the weekend keeping track of all that those trades um but again I think it just speaks to um you know where we're going in the league in terms of um from a salary standpoint and and, and managing your cap and you know as as the demands of salaries are going up for some of these premium positions like you know, you can only have so many of those contracts on your roster. Right. And so teams have to be really sensitive to not just what the outlook is today, but what their outlook is in 23 and 24. Are we going to be able to, you know, pay um, A.J. Brown this amount? How does that affect the rest of sure. our roster? Is it sustainable? And so as those things are happening, I think you're seeing, like, you know, a little bit more of um, some of these these players changing, um, changing venues. That is a great segue, what I wanted to talk about. Before you got here and when you got here, you decided on this position – 
with Josh and you started to look at the movement that you had to make with current salaries, who you were going to bring in in free agency, who aren't going to get fifth-year options, with your experience, what gave you an edge with that, looking at all those numbers and how to set that part of the roster before the draft? Yeah, well, I think, you know, I, I was able, you know, to, to get some of that experience in New England. And I just think from a roster building standpoint, like the one thing that I've talked about for us is when you're when you have a specific vision in terms of the roles on your team and even the roles within each position group. OK, so then within those roles, there's an element of like how much you allocate to those different roles. So it's not just this mosaic of, OK, we're going to have eight receivers. OK, and then it's like. One receiver, the fourth receiver on our team, ideally fits a specific role where he's a inside-to-outside player and contributing to the kicking game. So that's a specific mindset that you have. And then there's a certain allocation of money, right, that goes into that role. And so that's throughout the whole team. And I won't, you know, go through every role and how we allocate all that type of stuff. But having that mindset, it gives you a lot more of a structured approach when you're looking at roster building because you have a sense of, okay, what a third receiver is here, how much that, um, how much we're going to allocate to that position and how much we value it. It helps kind of set the structure, I would say, um, from a, from a monetary standpoint of how you're going to build it. So I would be fascinated to know how that changed with Devonte because a big number, obviously giving up draft equity. So then you set your board up and you know that there are going to be some more offensive players coming in. You got a couple of running backs. You're deciding on what you're going to do. So the experience that you had in the past, did you ever have anything that you think would be that big, pulling the trigger on a monster player via a trade right before the draft and then keep those numbers and those allocations in line? Yeah, well, it's not something we, I would say, in my training um, in New England that we, that wasn't really, um, you know, ever a part of the philosophy there, right? right? Um, and, and so you develop your own philosophy, and, and I think what, what, came, what came to fruition there was, um, you know, being able to acquire um, one of the top players, if not the best player at his position, um, and also having that player wanting to come here too, sure, you know, and and so that made it a little bit easier too. And then, yeah, I w- you know, there's a lot of to your to your question before you make that decision. There's a lot of philosophical things that you have to um, come to understand. Like the roster building is going to be different after you make a decision like that, right. and how you're going to build the roster and how you're going to be able to spend money. Um, this year in free agency, free agency, and as you go forward, yeah, it changes your perspective on things. And so we had to, we had a lot of discussions before we ultimately made that decision. Like, hey, this is how this is going to impact us going forward. This is how this is going to impact our decision making process. This is how it's going to impact how we build the team. So there was a lot of discussions before. You don't just do that. Sure. Um, you don't just do that trade unless, unless you, you know, maybe if you've um, institutionally been together in one place for 10 years and you understand how everything comes together. But this was a new situation. We had to, we had to come to um, an agreement on a lot of things before we made that trade of like, all right, once we do this, like this is how it's going to be going forward. And, um, you know, the draft's going to be a, an important part of this going forward. We need young players to um, contribute and have roles on this team. Dave Ziegler's our guest. One more on that. That must be fascinating now to put in your arsenal and your resume to say with the experience you have and you have a long career in front of you that you pulled the trigger 
on a deal like that before your first draft. You knew personally you'd have to wait for the third round. And then when you saw the run on the receivers early in the trades for that, mm-hmm. did that help you justify your decision even more that you made a great choice? Felt better. Yeah, felt a lot better, <laughs> I can assume. Right? Yeah, once that, that draft board was cleared out pretty quick of you know who those top receivers were. And so... Um, I think, you know, uh, again, I really wasn't necessarily looking for validation. We felt like ultimately when we made the decision, we, again, we'd thought a lot about it, um, the ins and the outs of it, the ramifications for 23, the ramifications for 24, how it was going to affect everything. And so we thought a lot about that. But at the same time, um, you know, um, receiver would have been a position of need, you know. And so um, to see that kind of run happen and it, you know, I, you know, personally, does it help kind of make you feel a little bit more comfortable about the decision that you made? Sure. You know, it does. A lot of fans nationally were saying this is the Vegas draft because it looked so exceptional and it was amazing, but it was also the Georgia draft. Mm. And when you saw something like this historically, and from what the Raiders have done with Alabama players in the past and Clemson recently, did you imagine that when you saw the run on the Georgia players? You ended up getting one at running back, but the defensive players that started flying off the board, that was incredible. Yeah, it was, it was incredible. And um, once you really spent time watching the team, which we, you, know, you end up watching a lot of guys, um, you want to watch the top competition. Sure. So you see a lot of Georgia tape even when you're not watching Georgia guys because you're watching other guys play against Georgia. That's who you want to see. And so once I saw, you know, Georgia for the 12th time, yeah. I wasn't too surprised. Three in the morning watching yeah, Georgia yeah, tape again. That all these guys went because they were so talented and they just had guys at every position on defense. I mean, um, I mean, uh, uh, credit to, to, to those guys down there and their recruiting staff and being able to get those players in and keep those players. With the transfer portal now, it's hard to keep those players and find a way to utilize them um, and find roles for them as a tribute to those guys down at Georgia. They do a great job down there, obviously. Dave Ziegler is our guest in studio at the Raiders facility. So you get Dylan Parham at the offensive line position in the third round. So I'm hosting a draft party, and you're up at 86, and then you move back. So I'm figuring you knew you had the player or you hoped you'd have the player. What is that anxiety like when you know that there are a lot of other GMs around the league that might want your that you know you want to get at 86, but it'll probably be there at 90. What was that like? Yeah, that's the anxiety of the yeah. draft. <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, throughout the draft, that's where the um, the stressful moments come, and that's where the you know the anxiety comes as you're waiting to pick. Uh, you know who's going to be available. You know you go into I would say you go into every kind of selection with you know more than one player. Um, obviously, sometimes it can get down to one player, but um, you know the best strategy is have you know you you have to be comfortable with a couple guys at a couple different slots. Um, ultimately, you know we um, we had a team that wanted to move up, and we felt like the trade with, was worthwhile for us from a point standpoint. When you look at um, you know again, every trade is monitored by points. You're mm-hmm. winning trades, you're losing trades, you're sure. even. We felt like we were getting really good value out of the trade, and we felt like there was going to be a couple guys there. We hoped there would be a couple guys there if we traded back that we were going to be comfortable taking at slot 90. Um, and, and Dylan was, was one of those guys, and Dylan ended up being there. And so, um, It was a good feeling to have him still there. You're kind of just staring at that screen as those picks come up, you know, um, you know hoping that that guy doesn't go. So I'm definitely sure. some anxiety. That was great. Then Zamir White, the running back. So in your due diligence with him, because his story is so incredible, and the Georgia tape you talked about watching with him at running back, and the running back room is pretty much fulled up now. You have a lot of competition there. What was one or two things that really jumped out, maybe one on the field that you mm-hmm. saw, but something about his character that was really important? His physicality and speed. 
on the field. Like he's a guy that runs between the tackles. He's powerful. He runs behind his pads. Um, he creates yards on contact. And so there's this physical element to that player. Um, I would say it, a lot of times when you have those physical backs, you it, it, the, the rarity part is his speed. So he ran a 4.39 coming out. So to have the combination of this physical element, but also have a guy that can hit the home run sure. when he gets into open space, I'd say those are the, the kind of the unique combination of him um, as a player that were, that were intriguing. In terms of the kid, I, I think um, he had been through a lot of life adversity. Um, not just some of the health things that he went through, like when he was born, uh, also you know the knee injuries yeah. that he have, that he has had, uh, and so to know that a guy has went through so much life adversity and had come out the other end with still remarkable traits, remarkable character, um, hard to find a bad thing um, that someone's going to say about about this guy, um, tells me a lot about just the level of maturity when you're coming into the league all the different transitions that you're going to have to go through from living on your own to a new city to a new playbook, um, all the different things that come up um, with becoming a professional athlete, uh, looking back at what he'd already been through gives you more confidence that, you know, he's going to be able to handle those things in a mature way and you have a low-maintenance player on your hand. Dave Ziegler live in studio at the Raider facility. My favorite part of the draft was the fourth and fifth round, LSU and Tennessee, and then they put the video up of it. And we only have so much of it, and we see both players pop and the, the physicality and the strength and how quick uh, Neil and especially Matthew are off the ball. Tell us a little bit about their speed, versatility, on top of what they had coming into camp soon. Yeah, well, you know, um, Neil's a big guy that can anchor the middle. And I think the thing about Neil that you saw on tape was he can eat space, which is an important thing. You want to plug gaps, right? You want to close down running lanes. The thing that he was able to do that we liked um, that you saw on tape is he also was able to defeat blocks and make plays. So there's one thing about a guy that can just come in there and eat space and just kind of man the middle. But, um, you know, Neil, for a bigger guy, is able to defeat blocks, make some plays out of, the, out of his gap. He has a nimbleness about him, I'd say, with his feet. He, he can move a little bit. Um, and, you know, when you looked at the senior bowl tape, um, you know, he had a lot of um, just impressive snaps there, whether it had been from the one-on-ones or, or in practice where he's going against some different style of offensive linemen and being able to just to be physical and, and, and kind of be a, a guy that could create a new line of scrimmage. And so I think those were some of the things that were uh, attractive about him when we watched his tape. Um, Matthew brings a little bit of a different element in terms of he's not as big. Um, he's under 300 pounds. He's a very instinctive player. Uh, he can move around the line of scrimmage a little bit more. So, you know, we have, um, you know, when you look at our roster, we have a lot of big guys um, that can eat space. Uh, Farrell's a big guy. Hankins mm-hmm. is a big guy. Um, Billings is a big guy. Um, you know, we have, a, we have a couple other guys that, you know, a Vernon Butler who we signed is a big guy. And so we have a lot of big guys, and we like big guys. That's why we have a lot of them. Uh, but Matt gives you kind of a guy that can move across the line of scrimmage. He can line up at the one technique. He can line up at the three technique. Um, we hopefully have some versatility to line up, you know, four or five technique. And there's a, a little bit more of um, he, he's really efficient at defeating blocks and finding the football, making plays out of his gap too. But he can do it from he, – he showed the ability to do it from different spots. And so it's kind of a different piece inside than some of the guys that we had. And, and, and again, another guy, character – um, very high. Yes. We saw that with Vince Wilfork with the Patriots. When you have a guy that demands a double team, 
And then the Patriot running back, uh, excuse me, linebackers when you were there that were able to make plays a little bit easier mm-hmm. because of the scheme and being able to attack and knowing that there wasn't a problem up front. Now we stay here in Las Vegas where you have the depth at that position or at least growing it. And you have Chandler Jones and Max coming off the edge. So the fact that you didn't get a linebacker until the undrafted free agents, when you looked at that, did you feel like this defensive line had to be solidified because everything will be better from the linebackers to the secondary after that? Yeah, I think that's right. I think just philosophically, like building it inside out is, is um, you know, something that we've always believed in. And, you know, having those big guys up front, like like you just said it, they they eat space, they keep players off those you know off those guys at the second level and um you know we're excited about the guys that um we got in college free agency there and um not to say that you know again we're looking to improve every position uh, constantly um but you know having a big strong defensive line does give you some gives those guys at the second level some relief some relief do you believe that just historically where you've come from and your tree and what you like so much about this, the undrafted free agents is something that you want to explode on? That's going to be part of your namesake. What was it like after day three and getting all these scouts, new scouts, people you've known, people in the building? Take me through that process and how difficult it was, fun it was, and how ready you were for it. Yeah, it was really it was one of the most efficient processes I've been a part of. Outstanding. Um, Champ Kelly, our assistant GM, and and um, some of our other um, area scouts, our national scout Sean Harak, Andy Dangler, Dewan Daniels, and a plethora of the area scouts. Um, but those guys really took the lead on, I would say, getting it organized, um, getting it set up, tiering out the different guys. You know, the A tier, B tier, C tier players, if you will, um, having a lot, having a lot of dialogue, dialogue with the players. Um, you know, through the through the process where, um, and I'm talking about even back in March where you're zooming guys and being able to kind of um, get to know players, recruit players to a degree during that time. Um, so we were really ready for it. Those guys had done did a really good job of being prepared. And once the bell rang, it was man, we were ripping and rolling. And yeah. and and before you knew it, um, you know, our class was we we were good to go. You know, and we we filled out our class with the guys that we wanted to at the positions that we wanted to. Now you're talking about you're looking more at need. Yeah. You know, we we talked a lot about the best available player throughout the draft, but when you get into college free agency, you're still looking for the best available players. But you're also looking like, okay, we need to have 12 receivers, you know, at camp, or we need to have so many tight ends. And so there's much more of a focus on need. But um, I can't say enough about, you know, what our group did. And I would say that's been kind of a theme that's been um, something that's been impressive to me um, since we've been here on the scouting side. And I know Josh would say the same thing on the coaching side. We've brought a lot of new people in. Um, and, uh, you know, from a, we started in April, um, you know, a small group of us getting ready for the draft and kind of just working from the, the draft, mm-hmm. uh, each position top to bottom. We hadn't spent a lot of time together. And, and we talked about it at the end. It was like we felt like we'd been working together for five years. Um, it was just kind of that level of continuity and, and um, uh, a bunch of guys kind of uh, low ego guys driven by team. And it's been a a really cool process. So again, hats off to those guys. They did a great job in college free agency. Last position group. I want to go back to the offensive line. June 1st, post June 1st, do you think there'll be an opportunity? It could be a big name that gets cut on cut down. It could be an injury. Someone got banged up. How important is that now with the development of Alex Leatherwood, what you have with Colton Miller, what you did in the draft with your first selection to maybe find one more player? How do you find that added depth still on the offensive line? Yeah, well, I think, um, we're, one, we are really excited about the guys that we have on the offensive line and, and their development. And, and um, 
I've said it before, I think we have a, a lot of guys that are ascending players there um, that are going to continue to get better. Um, but at the same time, like you, like you mentioned, and I would say whether it's the offensive line, really any position, like um, post-June 1st, um, there'll be some players there. Um, you know, there's there's trade opportunities. You go into the preseason, you know, as, as um, different position battles develop and then other teams are looking at, you know, they want the young guy to play. Then, the you know, the older veteran guy gets cast to the side or um, the cut down at the 53 when there's going to be players available there. We're going to always look at all those avenues to add players. And the offensive line, um, you know, I, I would say you can never have enough of them. Sure. Um, you know, because it is a play, it is a position where there is so much development that takes place because the college game is so much different than the pro game when it comes to run schemes and pass protection and things like that. And so, you have to if you're not it, it, quarterbacks, no different. Like I think you have to be, you know, you have to kind of be in the quarterback market all the time too um, to 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 find players because that's that's a position that there's a developmental aspect to. And so. Um, whether it's the offensive line or whether it's anybody, any other position, we're always going to be, um, whether it's um, through our league contacts and finding out what where teams are at in terms of their roster or what actually comes across the waiver wire, um, we're going to be you know dialed into those spots and looking for players. Dave, as we wrap this up, how much do you and Josh love competition? You came from one of the <clears throat> great organizations in football the last 20-plus years. Fans want to know that level of competition. There's been previous coaches who have been real competitive, too. We know their names Mm -hmm. and other executives here. But what make you two as a team ultra-competitive, especially with the calendar flipping now to May as we get to June and you get everybody here in-house? Yeah, it's a good question. I think, um, you know, we have had – we've been very fortunate to to experience a very high level of success throughout our careers. Um, you know, for myself, um, you know, I started in the league in 2010, and um, I, there's only been two seasons where I haven't been in the playoffs, um, and, you know, four Super Bowls. Um, and, you know, Josh, is, his streak's even a lot longer. Streak than, is insane. His, his streak's insane. Yeah, it's, a lot it long, it's a lot longer than mine. So um, I don't know, like once you taste it, um, you know, it's, it's a taste that never leaves your mouth. And so like, and, and also knowing what it looks like and what it takes, right? So we've seen it, we know what it looks like, we know what it takes, and, and we've tasted it. And so that drive for us, um, I would say, is just, um, it's all we really know because it's all we've experienced. And so, um, you know, we, we're competing at a high level. I'm competing today. You know, I'm competing against that checklist I have in my office of all those things that I need to get done that I think are going to help improve the team and help improve this organization. And for me, it's a it's a race from the the time I step in the building until the time that I go. And I know Josh has that same mindset also. So it's really um, it's it's it goes beyond just the field too. It's you know we're, we really are kind of we're always talking about the way that we can improve every single aspect of the organization and um, whether it was the um, you know the draft process. Uh, I had a conversation about how you know what the post draft food was like. There you, you go. You know and what the menu was like. The restaurants in this town. <laughs> it's good to order in here in this town. Yeah, I can tell you that. No doubt. So um, you know we we're looking at all those things and. Um, Josh and I have been competing since we were 18 years old. You know, we were in the same wide receiver group. So we were competing against each other at that time for play time. And so it's just, it's a, it's just a natural, um, it's a natural kind of, uh, 
a feeling between the both of us of, of how we operate and how we move, and that's why we get along so well. I think what's so fascinating for you guys is the success you talked about, especially recently, and competing against the Raiders in the past, mm-hmm. and the history of the Raiders, mm-hmm. and Al Davis. Mm-hmm. Have you had an opportunity to step back? When did that hit you the most at... Man, I've been scheming against the Raiders and going against the Raiders and wanting to beat them, and now I'm a Raider. When did that hit you for the first time? Yeah, I would say just, you know, when we pulled up to the facility or the day of the press conference, um, when we were going to do the introductory press conference, and, you know, you see this beautiful building pop out of the, pop out of the desert, and then you see the, you know, the torch out front and the flame going. And I think that's kind of where it, that's kind of where it hit me. Yeah, I could tell. Um, you know, where I'm like, all right, man, we're like, we're, we're Raiders now. And, and um, you know, growing up, um, you know, I was, you know, the Raiders were always just one of those franchises. It's always just been a cool franchise. Like the Raiders are cool. Yeah. You know, and, and from Bo Jackson to Marcus Allen to Rich Gannon to Mr. Davis, um, and and uh, Charles Woodson and you know then Jerry was here and you know all those different people here and just looking at this emblem here like um, you know it was just uh, that moment when we pulled in and saw that torch and just saw this building and saw the silver and black it was like man we're really like we're really here um, we're really Raiders and hit yeah it hit me and I still when I walk in in the mornings you know sometimes I look up and you know see the Raiders emblem on the side of the building and the words and I'm like. I'm, you know, the GM of the Raiders. Like, time this to is, get to work, yeah. Time to get to work. This is awesome. Uh, last one, and I appreciate you being so generous with your time. What are your expectations from the fans? These fans have been through a lot. They have a deep history. Cliff Branch mm-hmm. will be re- uh, represented in Canton, Ohio. You have the Hall of Fame game. When you interact with these Raider fans since you've been here and you're going to be at Allegiant Stadium representing this franchise, what are your expectations from these great fans? Um, well, I would say uh, while I was out in New England, I oftentimes when I was a pro scout would have to go advance games, right? So you'd go and, and see the next opponent. And sometimes it was the next opponent you were going to play. Uh, um, <clears throat> it didn't mean like I may be going to watch the 49ers, but they happen to be playing in Oakland, right? So I went to a lot of games in, in, in Oakland. And so um, I saw what that black hole was like. And I also saw the elements in the parking lot before the games, you know, what that energy was like. And then um, going into the stadium, getting to see um, kind of that, that part of the stadium operate. Um, so what my expectations are, I'd say, um, very similar to what I saw then was a lot of passion, a lot of noise, um, a lot of distraction, a lot of colorful characters, um, and just a lot of people that, like, love the Raiders, but also, like, understand their role as fans of affecting the game. Raiders fans, like, one thing that I noticed going out there is, like, they understand the flow of the game. They understand when it's third down. They understand when it's a crucial moment in the game. They understand when it's a two-minute drill. Like, they're there to be disruptive, and I like that. I like Raiders fans that come in on Sundays and want to be disruptive and have a good time, and um, that's what we expect. And I would say just, um, you know, the interactions that I have had with fans here, um, it's really cool to see the passion here, but you know the Raiders brand is like that's international, you know, and it and it's across the country. It's all through California. It's in Mexico. Um, the Raiders is a brand that is global, and so um, you know we're we're really excited about um, that first game and and uh, hearing those fans and their and their vocal strengths. Thanks for having us in, Dave. Great to get to know you now, and I yeah. hope I can come in here and do this more often. Anytime, you JP. got it. Appreciate you.